You may be seated. Thank you, Forrest and guys, for leading us in worship this morning. It's a good uh, day when you get a chance to sit and sing with the rest of the congregation. And if you've never had that privilege to do something for a long time and be kind of taken away from uh, the joys of actually singing with you in the congregation, you, you'll understand what I mean. It's, it's kind of a, it's a life giving opportunity that you have to be able to hear what God has for us in his grace and mercy through song. And, and I, today, so that's my prayer for us today, that we would actually hear about God's grace and mercy. And you wouldn't hear what I have to say because I don't care what I have to say. What I do care, what I have, what I do care about what is to be said is what God has to say to us. And so if you would open up your Bibles to Numbers 21, verses four to nine, that's where we'll be this morning. But if you're like my family, these past couple weeks, we've been watching the Olympics. Uh, We've been watching a lot of extra TV because of the Olympics, or at least I have, until all hours in the morning, trying to read and watch the Olympics. By the way, it doesn't work that way. You try to do one thing, like read a book and watch the Olympics, you kind of miss both. Uh, So do one or the other, don't do both. But during the Olympics, there are many times, just like the Super Bowl, I don't know if you've noticed this, there are new commercials that come out. Have you noticed that? And, and this year, one particular struck me. One in particular tried to do something that I didn't expect would happen. And, and uh, that's, that's rare to not be, you know, to be caught off guard like that from a commercial especially. But this commercial started off with displaying some athletes and a woman's voice comes across and says, this year during the Olympics, during this time, America is going to win a bunch of gold medals, essentially. They're gonna look like the healthiest nation in the world. And then there's a dramatic pause and it's, she says this, but we're not. And then there's some very sad pictures of ERs that are full, hospital beds, people recovering from illness. And I thought to myself, like, okay, so what, why is this news? Why is this a commercial in the first place? Do we think highly of ourselves, so highly of ourselves that we don't realize that sickness happens all of the time? Or are we just more attuned to that now? Or what is this commercial trying to say to us? It's actually trying to, to show us that, hey, maybe we aren't like we say we really think we are. Or on the other hand, it says, hey, I I think there's a narrative that we've been missing by showing our dominance in sports across the ages. I don't know. But what I do know is what it displayed was a lack of patience and a lack of understanding. Is that these ERs, I don't know if you've ever, if you saw this commercial, you'll see, you'll remember what I'm talking about. It showed all the seats full. But I've never been in an ER that didn't have all the seats full. And then it's all hospital beds full. And while we are dealing with a pandemic, we are dealing with something that is different. Sickness is normal in our lives. And to display the impatience that we have displayed, not trusting God to do what he said he would do, which is take care of us, it does show our lack of faith and trust in him. And so today, I don't want us to dwell on the lack of faith and trust. What I want us to do is root that out from our hearts. I want us to believe God when he says he will be with you and will never forsake you. 
I want us to believe him when he says that I have taken all of your iniquities upon me and that there is nothing that can touch you if you are in Christ Jesus. I want us to look and live at the cross because of what Jesus has done for you and me. So let us stand. Let us hear the word read aloud from Numbers 21, 4 to 9. Starting verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and there is no water. And we loathe this worthless food. Then the, people, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he takes away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Let us pray. And Father in heaven, you are a holy God. You are a righteous God, good in all that you do, steadfast in your love for your people, for your creation. Lord, today focus our hearts on what your son has done and root out the sin in our lives that holds us back from knowing him more. For Lord, that's our cry. We want our heads to know who you are, our hearts to believe, and our hands to work for you. Lord, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So I think we should probably catch up on like what's happening in the book of Numbers before we dive into something that we haven't been studying lately. How about you? Yeah, maybe? My brother agrees. Thank you, Jared. In the book of Numbers so far, what we've seen is a couple things, and really good and bad things. We've, you come to the book of Numbers, they've been led out of Egypt toward the promised land. They come to the doorstep of the promised land, and they go, and they send some 12 spies. The 12 spies come back. Ten of them give a bad report. And then two of them believe God. And the people believe the 10. They're like, heck no, we're not going into a land where there's giants. I don't care what's on the other side of it. They don't believe God that he was going to give it to them. But here's what, here's what happens. God says, okay, for your unbelief, for your, you know, un, your non-faith, really, in what, or non-trust in what God has for you, and what I have for you, you will not enter the promised land. And so for 40 years, they are sentenced to wander the wilderness because of their insolence, their lack of trust, and their accusations against God. But God is gracious to them. He gives them victory after victory over enemies. He leads them by day and night. He still feeds them with manna from the, from the sky. Manna that literally had nobody known about prior to this. And yet they still complain 
Seven times they complain about God, about Moses. They accuse Moses six of these times by himself for leading them wrong, improperly. And then the seventh one we see today where they accuse Moses and God. So with that little background, let's move into our first section. I'm gonna give you the sections before, uh, the outline before I start this. So here you go. The outline is this, verses four to five, sin distorts grace. That's what I want you to catch up, catch there. Sin distorts grace. And verses six to nine, I want you to see that discipline brings salvation. Discipline brings salvation. So sin distorts grace, point one. Discipline brings salvation, point two. So in our first section, sin distorts grace. We see that the Israelites have been traveling to the plain of Moab. They don't really say that explicitly, but they are trying to go, they were previously trying to go through Edom. And the king of Edom says, no, you're not coming through here. And uh, Moses like brings the Israelites to the border of Edom and the Edomites come out against them. And so they, they turn away. And they go the long way around Edom to go to the promised land. Well, they've been traveling for a while. And they remember uh, that, you know, all of the things that God has done, I'm sure that they're thinking about all of the, you know, the beautiful things that God has done, all the wonderful uh, provisions that he's provided, the victories that he's given. Nah. They focus on the worst parts. They focus on the desert before them. And they become impatient. Essentially, what this word actually, what this word implies and what it means in Hebrew, it's kind of a long, drawn-out thing, but what it means is essentially that they did not have the heart to bear the journey. They didn't trust God enough in what he said he was going to do, which is take them around this, uh, the Edomites. They didn't uh, believe what he said he, he would do. So instead of being encouraged by the previous events of deliverance and provision, which had just happened, if you just look up above your you're in your Bible, verse one, says when the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way, he went and fought against Israel and the Lord gave them victory. So instead of focusing on the victory and all the good things that God has given them, they decide to harden their hearts against God. They become impatient and hasty and they turn from the Lord. And this impatience is rooted in side of their hearts not believing God based on what he has done. The sin rooted in their hearts, in fact, distorts the grace that God has shown them. So the Israelites accuse Moses and God of attempted murder, essentially. Why have you brought us to the wilderness to die? We were so much better in Egypt. We had, you know, to make bricks without straw. We had to uh, get beaten within the inches of our lives but at least we had leeks and garlic. At least we could fill our tummies with something that was yummy. But guess, guess what? All those things passed away. Garlic doesn't stay in your system very long. And neither did their remembrance of what God had done. So they asked for the last time, why have you done this? Ignoring the fact that the entrance, they were at the entrance of the promised land that God was giving to them and they turned away in, in disobedience. Their hearts were blinded by the very, sin, very, sin, like very small amount of comfort that they had in Egypt. And their eyes were burnt from the glare of the desert. 
they could not see the provision that God had provided them. Not from the water of the rock, twice. Not from the food from the sky and manna and quail. No, they couldn't see it. In fact, they could not even taste the goodness of the bread of angels from heaven. They loathed it. They said it was worthless. They said, we don't have anything. But they ignored the fact that reality said they did, that their past was actually full of grace. They classified God as their enemy. An enemy who afflicted, afflicted them with goodness. Let that not be us. And in their final rebellion, they would have dire consequences. They have falsely accused God and his servant of wickedness. Yet it is them, it is they who had high-handedly forsaken God and despised his commandment. The Israelites suffered from two sins, I think primarily. Unbelief and forgetfulness. And you guys might understand what I mean by the sin of unbelief. I think that's easier. But I think it's actually a sin to forget all the things that God has done also. In fact, why do I say that? Because constantly in the word, he says, remember. Constantly he says, remember what I've done for you. He gives us signs and symbols to remember what he said. In fact, he had given the Israelites tassels. He, had, he said back in uh, chapter 16, hey, I'm gonna give you these tassels. Put these tassels at the bottom of your garments so that you might remember the works that I have done and who I am. But they, even, but they forget all of that. They're wearing everything, all the reminders. The reminders of their clothing, the reminders of their garments that never worn out. Their shoes never went dry, never broken. But they, they, that should have been their first, you know, their first indication that God actually cared for them. And yet they ignored it. See, they ignored God's covenant love for their own wants and desires. They despised his miraculous works and his word. And the impatience, they lost their, in their impatience, they lost the heart and the source of sin that plagued them would not leave. They didn't believe God when he said that he would care for them as their father. No, they, so, they thought so lowly of him that they accused him of sin himself. But our, our God cannot sin. We may not understand what's going on, but he cannot sin. It is for our good and his glory. No, they called him a liar. Not the deliverance from Egypt. It wasn't enough. The wonders from the Exodus journey, it wasn't enough. The pillar of cloud by day that led them or the cloud of fire or the pillar of fire by night that led them wasn't enough. The quail that he got, they got from the sky or the manna every day wasn't enough for them to remember who God was. No, for Israel, nothing was gonna be enough. Nothing was going to be enough because they were so focused on their own selfish desires. And because these means were not enough, they suffered from forgetfulness and unbelief. Both heart problems that distort the grace of God. Both sin that distort the grace that they received. So here's the first call. Forsake your sin of unbelief. Since we have seen that sin distorts God's grace, we must forsake the sin of unbelief because we actually do have all of the works of God through his people that we need to know about right here. And if you have been a Christian or you have seen testimonies of Christians, you've seen faithful actions by men of God and women of God 
What else do you need to know that he's actually there? His word is perfect and sure. We cannot leave him because he is sovereign, he is in control, he is wise, and he is good. Sovereign, wise, and good. If you can remember those things, sovereign, wise, and good, it'll help you forsake your sin of unbelief. When we think God isn't able or act like he doesn't care, we must repent of that unbelief because he is completely able and he is totally sovereign. One of my favorite theologians and what uh, my wife would tell you is her adopted grandfather. It's weird, it's, it's reverse. R.C. Sproul said it, this, said it this way. If there's one single molecule in this universe running loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. Church, that is not true. There are every, but it is true that every single molecule is under the control of God. He's not trying to introduce doubt. He's trying to show you that every promise he has made up until this point has been true and perfect. And you can trust that promise. Israel had witnessed the power and presence of God like none before them, and yet their unbelief reigned in their hearts. Likewise, we live and act in unbelief. We're always wanting more, right? We always want more in some way. We always are struggling with contentment with what we have. Like the Israelites, we lose heart when it's not in our timing and our souls become hasty. We think that we cannot care or we, we think that we can take care of things better than he can. And that's straight out of the, the fact that we don't believe that he is in control. We try to change our spouses. We try to change our children. We try to control our friends and even control our neighbors. But this is all a lack of belief. Because belief, true belief, comes from knowing who God is and remembering the fact that you have no power over anyone else but to believe in God himself. See, we suffer from uh, heartache and suffer from life because our souls seek a uh, seek comfort from things that aren't actually comforting. Because I'll tell you, food is really great until you, you know, you eat so much of it that it, you know, either you gain weight or your stomach hurts. Water's great too. You can even have a, but you can have even too much water and put yourself in the hospital. That's not my, that's not my friend Corey's problem back there. He drinks like eight ounces a day, max. Sorry, I just outed you. (laughs) But we need to believe that our all-wise, sovereign, and good God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do and forsake our sin of unbelief. And we do this by meditating on the promises that he has, promises that he has for us. Because the promise to never, never leave you or forsake you, to uphold you with his right hand and give you life, there is no greater promise. Nothing else can sustain you. And we must forsake the sin of unbelief because unbelief distorts God's grace in our lives. But we also must forsake the sin of forgetfulness. We must forsake the sin of forgetfulness because God's wondrous works are displayed every day and we only need to look, open our eyes really to see them. Forgetfulness feeds our unbelief 
And just like the Israelites functionally forgot what God has done for them for his own sake and their good, we do the same thing. We know in our minds and our hearts that he, who he is because we've read his word, but we haven't meditated on it long enough for it to actually get into our souls. And so we act out of unbelief and forgetfulness. And while we might not accuse God of sin, we functionally act like he is not for us, which is the opposite of who he is, who he is for us if you were in Christ Jesus. So we must learn to fight forgetfulness. One way we do that is through faithful prayer. And there is no simpler or profound prayer than the Lord's Prayer. And some of you might be thinking, ah, oh, I know this Lord's Prayer. I've, seen, I've done it my entire life, since I was a baby. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe it yet? Do you? Because I think we all have to realize that we don't believe it at the level that Christ demands we believe it. It says this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You see, you notice he said, give us this day our daily bread. It's right there in the middle. Why do you think he does that? I can tell you one way why he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it so that we might remind God of his responsibility toward us. To do so would be very, very, very sinful. But it's to remind us to open our eyes to the provisions that God has already given to us. What are the things that God has blessed you with? God has blessed you with food and water, the means to get from point A to point B. We are the most blessed nation in the world. And it is not something that we should take lightly. In fact, we should live in some proper, you know, thankfulness and gratefulness to what God has done for us. But instead, we always struggle with contentment. We always look to what I don't have. And we ask ourselves, God, why aren't you giving me more? Does that not sound like something familiar here? It's a contradiction. We live in such a blessed state, and yet we can't even see it. So to to battle forgetfulness, to forsake our sin of forgetfulness, we need to pray that God would change our hearts, that we would believe that what he says. And when we, when we actually pray, give us this day our daily bread, that we focus our hearts on the truly good things of this world that is given to us from God. Also, to battle forgetfulness, we must meditate on the glories of God. Now, this might sound very similar to what I just said, but hang with me. When I say let's meditate on the glories of God, I mean we need to take every thought captive to Christ. That no thought should be running around unhindered by what Christ has done and who he is. That's how we forsake the sin of forgetfulness. We take every thought captive to Christ. And we think of it how he would think of it. And one of the best ways to do this is to memorize scripture. And now I realize that a lot of us have scripture memorized. Some of us have never even read scripture. So the whole spectrum's there, right? But here's what I want to encourage you with. That your memorization, if it stops there, it will never infect your heart. It will never lead you in paths of righteousness. 
it will only cajole you into doing something that you don't want to do because you, and make you feel guilty. But here's the thing, is it's supposed to be there to give you life. It's supposed, for you, it's supposed to be there for you to look at it and live. So let me give you two passages. A great place to start is Ephesians 1 about God's electing grace. For from the foundations of the world, he set his love upon you for his glory and your good. If you're in Christ Jesus, you need to hang on to Ephesians 1 when you don't think that God is for you. Or Colossians 1, 15 to 22, and in the power of God in Christ. For it is he who is upholding, he, Jesus, upholding all of creation by the word of his mouth, by the word of his power. So why do we think that, this is just a question, why do we think that everything's going to destruction? Everything is going to end up badly. I think it's because we don't believe that God is in control of all things. I think it's because we don't believe that Christ is the one actually giving us the next breaths in our lungs. It's because we live in unbelief and we forget who God is. Meditate on Ephesians 1. Memorize Colossians 1, 15 to 22. And battle forgetfulness in your own hearts. For there is nothing apart from him that is, that is or will be He is not a passive actor, but he is the active agent in the world bringing you all of the blessings that you might have in Christ. Christians, we must not forget the wonderful works of the Lord. We must not forget his abundant grace. For unless our thoughts blaze with his glory, we will grope for salvation in the face of goodness. We will grope for satisfaction in places that they will not be satisfying. You must remember the grace that he has given us, past, present, and remember that he will give it to you in the future. Fight forgetfulness, forsake your sin of unbelief, for he is better than you ever dreamed. And do that by memorizing scripture through prayer and meditation. So we fight our sins of unbelief and forgetfulness, but even those need to be disciplined out of us These sins require discipline and a means of salvation. So let's look at the rest of the verses. Verse six, the Lord sent fiery serpents among his people. Pause. What do we know about snakes? It's not incidental to the story. Snakes, but throughout the Bible, are actually like bad things, right? They're evil. They're deceiving. They're all of the things that, you know, Satan is, he is called the great serpent. But they're not, these are not merely symbols either. And they got the job done as what was promised, right? For their, you know, God said back in Numbers 11 that they would all fall, that generation would fall in the wilderness. But it should be a reminder of what they were delivered from. For they were delivered out of the hand of Egypt where Pharaoh wore a snake on his hat to remind them of the power that he has over the desert, the power that he has over his kingdom. But he's a false king and a false God. And God himself showed us that as he led them out of Egypt. But in turn, they became exactly what they desired, right? They said, why have we come 
Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? In reality, they were dying in Egypt and they were being given life in the wilderness. Their circumstances had blinded them. No, they became exactly what they desired, the desert, the false king, the false god back in Egypt. And they turned into exactly what they desired, serpents by the way of the venom coursing through their veins. That was the immediate reminder, right? They had just been delivered from the great serpent, Pharaoh himself. Let's go back to the garden. They know this story. They've been commanded to tell it over and over and over. They know what the serpent, what happened in the garden of Eden. He deceived Eve and sin entered in the world. But instead of hanging on to the promise in Genesis 3.15 that a snake crusher would come, that he would, they would be delivered from sin itself, they acted sinfully and embodied the snake that was ousted from the first garden. They became like Satan, accusing God of sin. And only after many Israelites died did they realize that their sinful desire to break away from this God who liberated them was incredibly foolish. See, they had been snatched out of the belly of the serpent and placed and given life, and yet they still went back to that serpent's belly. They wanted it again. But when they realized how foolish it was, Israel cried out to Moses and admitted their sin. They repented of their unbelief and hopes that the serpents would just leave. Right, that's what he asked. They asked for, uh, they say, we have sinned against you and the Lord. Pray to the Lord and take, that he might take the serpents from us. They're again caught up in their circumstances, right? They're, they're, they're repenting of their sin, but they're seeing what's right in front of them and they feel the sting of the venom coursing through their veins. So they think, oh, I just want the serpents gone. But God, in his grace, delivers them even from this request. We can see the Israelites did not fear the Lord and they were not being disciplined by what they knew of the Lord. And so God sent fiery serpents. This corrective discipline instilled the, the proper understanding of the, Israel, to, uh, of the Israelites in relationship to God. It brought them knowledge of the Holy One. Now, um, parents in the room, a lot of us in the room are parents or have been parents, or grandparents or will be parents soon. And one of the things that we go through all of the time with our, you know, six, four, two, and, uh, well, not yet born, so, but I'm, I'm anticipating having to discipline her or him also, is discipline, right? Corrective discipline. We're trying to do something not to punish, we're not trying to hurt, right, when we, when we discipline. We're actually trying to correct a behavior, right? We're trying to correct, uh, correct a heart problem. And so this is corrective discipline brought on the Israelites to show them that God is actually holy, holier than they could ever imagine and greater than they could ever think. And when Moses prayed to the God of heaven, the Lord spoke to him with tender mercy. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. What a gracious, what a merciful God that we have, that we would make a way of salvation even in the midst of death, certain death. That's what they deserved, and yet God made a way. See, if they would rather 
have drank sand from the desert back in Egypt than from the fountain of life that God was providing for them in the promised land. And so they needed to be brought into right relationship with him. And that happens through discipline. And it happens sometimes to us like that too. I like to call myself a two by four Christian. Sometimes I need to be smacked upside the head with one. The, the little nudges sometimes don't work. You know what I'm talking about? Some of us need that two by four. The Israelites need the two by four. So do we. So Moses creates a bronze serpent, a likeness of the same serpents that killed and maimed many of his brothers so that the ones remaining might be saved. See, they must trust God's word to be saved, not merely looking upon the serpent, but with faith, believing that what God said to look upon the serpent was to live. The sins of the people required discipline to remind them of God's gracious and holy character. And discipline brings us salvation. This is a shadow of the cross. This is one of the greatest things that we can see at, at the beginning of the Bible that takes place at the end of the Bible. Right? This is a shadow of the cross in which our prince of glory died, the king of all creation. God sent his only son to this earth to repair that rift between us and God. Like the Israelites, we too suffer from our sinfulness. We suffer from unbelief and forgetfulness. And it's sting rides through our bodies and it cannot be abated. It cannot be soothed. It cannot be turned away by our own strength. There's nothing within this world to soothe that aching of our souls. Nothing to satisfy our desires. No, we must look to the provision of God. We must remember who he is and his son on the cross the king of glory whom we hung there because of our selfishness, our unbelief and forgetfulness, the suffering servant who descended to earth only to ascend to the cross for our salvation, for the salvation of his friends. You see, Jesus is our brazen serpent. He is our one mediator, our one advocate hung on a pole because of the venom in our veins and the wrath we deserved. See, he took it all upon himself. And like the fiery serpents, listen, Jesus came to discipline us, not with death-causing venom, but through the truly beautiful display of the cross of Christ. The instrument of death is our bridge to life. And as destruction was through a serpent, salvation was by the way of the serpent's head being crushed on the cross. All we must do is look and live. Look to his work, look to who he is, look to what he says is true. Gaze upon the truth that has always been and be saved. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, for our sake, you and I, for our sake, he made himself sin, to be no sin, or who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's try that again. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is there to display our glory, to display his glory, and to bring us to righteousness. Ignore the screens. <laughs> I'm having to do the same. It is there like a refiner's fire, the Lord's purifying discipline. He drives us into deeper dependence and desire for relief from our sin and applies the salve of Christ's atoning work on the cross and comforts our souls with the Spirit. 
See, we must humble ourselves, submit ourselves to Christ, pledge our wholehearted devotion to him and our savior. It is our obligation. It is not your, you do not have a choice, but to be saved is to be saved through Christ and his work. For he is worthy of everything that you have. He is worthy of our worship, worthy of our praise. He is goodness in all that it is, splendor of holiness. He has covered our transgressions. He has drowned out our grumbling and lifted our shameful chins to his son on the cross. Let us gaze upon his grace. And just as the shadow of the serpent covered the sins of the people, so the shadow of the cross will turn our eyes upon his grace his provision, his way, his wonders. Let us worship this God, not the gods of our own making, not what we think is God, not what we think we need, but the God who is actually Christ Jesus, our Lord, nailed to the tree. He is the bread of life run through by thorns and nails. The one who bled water and blood from his side so that we might have life and life abundantly forever. Let us lap it up. Let us drink from the brook of salvation, for he is your salvation. There is no other. From God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, he is our salvation. Let us pray.